I'm a political analyst and columnist, Danielle Moody. And I'm writer with Jahat Ali. And we've come together to lead you away from the lies and out of the gaslight. This, this is, is Democracy-ish. Democracy-ish. Absolutely very excited to speak with the host of The Mary Trump Show, Mary Trump. This is the Republican Party. There's, there aren't different wings of it anymore. The entirety of the Republican Party is a white supremacist, fascist party. Brian, Tyler, Cohen. People are focused on the attacks on democracy. It, they understand that this extremism is leading to further attacks and further erosions of rights. We discuss the serious issues and threats that face our nation. Join us on Democracy-ish everywhere you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Ravi Agrawal, Foreign Policy's Editor-in-Chief. This is FP Live. Welcome to the show. Climate envoys and diplomats from nearly 200 countries descended on Dubai this week for the UN's annual climate summit known as COP, or the Conference of the Parties. This is the 28th edition. This year's meeting is especially important. It's what is called a global stock take, the first formal assessment of whether nations are on track to meet a goal they set in Paris in 2015 to limit the rise in average global temperatures to just 1.5 degrees Celsius above pre-industrial levels. This year, countries are also expected to advance last year's discussions on a so-called loss and damage fund to help developing countries mitigate the impacts of climate change. They will also deliberate a timeline to phase out fossil fuels, a somewhat controversial thing among activists, given that the host country, the UAE, is the world's fifth largest oil producer. And the president of this year's conference, Dr. Sultan al-Jaber, is the head of ADNOC, the UAE's state oil company. So, Will the summit be a success or a bust? My guest this week is a longtime COP attendee. Vijay Vaithiswaran is the Global Energy and Climate Innovation Editor at The Economist. He served in a variety of roles at the newspaper in a career spanning three decades. If this is your first time with us, welcome. We take some questions, as you know, from subscribers to our magazine, and you can sign up too on foreignpolicy.com. Use the code FPLIVE for a pretty healthy discount. Also, if you like this podcast, rate us. It helps. Okay, let's dive in. Vijay, welcome to FP Live. Great to be with you, Ravi. So this year's COP will have what's called a global stock take. Your leader piece in The Economist this week already took a stab at that. I think the headline was clever. Some progress must try harder. Let's begin with that. What's what's the progress you're outlining? So if we take the longer sweep, and bear in mind, this is COP28. There have been 28 years of getting together, trying to forge uh, some kind of consensus, some kind of progress among 198 countries uh, on climate. We have seen since the time of the Paris Accord, which is a landmark breakthrough, um, renewables have taken off in quite a dramatic fashion. It is the cheapest way to produce power to use new solar photovoltaic almost everywhere in the world, even cheaper than coal. That is a dramatic advance that was not true or even on the cards a decade or two ago. Uh, We are seeing a much greater focus on energy efficiency, something that's gonna be on the table at this COP. Uh, A doubling of energy efficiency is an aspiration, a goal. Uh, Even if we don't get all the way there, that is uh, the best energy is the energy you don't use, right? You don't have to worry whether it's clean or dirty. And we have 
long neglected um, uh, the demand side of the equation. So that's on the table. And we've seen improvements in a number of areas, uh, such as energy access, where there's more attention going to be paid to it at this call. Um, we've also seen energy innovations coming on the decarbonization side as well, not just the green energy side, but what sometimes is called the brown to green, that is transitioning the existing asset base, which is in the trillions upon trillions of dollars in the industrial sector and the energy sector, to reduce carbon intensity of production, ultimately getting to zero carbon or net zero carbon, of course. Um, but uh, that sort of move towards uh, a brown to green approach is another amount of progress, we can say. That's on the positive side of the ledger. Innovation is coming. We're redirecting more capital. We've seen renewables take off, particularly solar. However, and I know you'll ask next what's on the other side. Well, we're, we're having some tremendous challenges, right? The, the scale of investment and uh, some of the difficulties with the interest rate and inflation environment, as well as political will. So we can get into that as well. But just to, to, to set the table, there is progress, uh, but warming continues. We are not headed towards a 1.5 degree C world as the aspiration of the Paris deal has for the world. We've, we're blowing past that, to be honest, um, even though officially, at the COP meeting, you're not allowed to say that. But in fact, we're, we're uh, in a world of overshoot. So the real questions are, how do we do the best we can with the cards we have uh, been dealt at the moment? Mm. So that sort of takes in the broader sweep of the last 28 years and progress leading up to this moment. Um, when it comes to the conference itself this week and next, uh, what what do you think are the, the biggest issues on the table? Uh, and to what extent do you think those are feasible, achievable things to be discussing right now? So, you know, there are numerous uh, and quite technical uh, points that will be discussed by the negotiators. Um, I think of, if we were to step back, uh, if you were, uh, let's say, an alien arriving from Mars, looking at this strange gathering that's happening once a year and up to 70,000 people to gather in, frankly, a hot, dusty, oil-rich country that is at great uh, risk of climate change. Let's be honest that Dubai is a city built out of the desert on oil riches. Um, uh, and now talking about climate change, they would say, what a strange gathering this is. What's, what, why and, does this and you've been to many of these, Vijay, but for people listening and watching uh, today who haven't been, this is like a giant trade show, right? With, 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 you know, all kinds of people, not just negotiating in corners, but then people selling their wares. So this is a, a very strange gathering for the alien that you're describing. You know, it's it's even more um, bizarre than a trade show. At least in a trade show, you know what you're buying. That is, <laughs> there's a vendor, they want to sell you a, a telecoms equipment, or they want to send you, sell you, you know, a compressor equipment for your oil and gas rig. It's not quite like that. This is a marketplace of ideas. Some good ideas, some very bad ideas, right? And so lobbyists, influence peddlers, people who want to shade your opinion on the role of hydrogen. And so all of the influencers and lobbyists and the governments that may have an advantage in one type of hydrogen versus another uh, who are hosting their energy industry lobbyists or their environmental lobbyists as well. Let's remember, this is a massive show of activism for all flavor of green from light green, willing to work with industry or accepting market uh, uh, sort of uh, rules and, and uh, the advantages of market-based trading or carbon pricing kind of environmental groups to those on the other side that are very skeptical about all of that, that think it's odious that an oil republic is hosting a climate summit that may wish to disrupt various activities if they can, if the police state 
uh, allows them to do so in the UAE uh, and who are generally disgruntled with the way things have gone at these climate summits for lacking ambition. So you're going to see all forms of advocacy on display. So you're not going to buy widgets. You're going to be peddled ideas. Yeah, indeed. And I interrupted you there, but then the uh, coming back to the broader goals this year, uh, what do you think are the, the, the main ticket items that will be up for discussion? So uh, one of the important themes that will be discussed is the future of fossil fuels. Now, this is a, a perennial. It comes up at many uh, COP meetings. Uh, we saw a couple of years ago at a notable climate conference, UN COP26, which was held in Glasgow, Scotland, um, there was a, a major effort to agree the phase out of coal, uh, which would be a big deal because if there is one single problem that world can tackle, that would have the biggest impact on uh, long-term climate, it would be to phase out coal. Coal is by far the most greenhouse gas intensive of energy that we use. It's also pollutes in a, a lot of other nasty ways, uh, it contributes to multiple millions of deaths per annum in local pollution and, and so on. But it is relied upon by China, by India, by Indonesia, by South Africa, a number of developing countries. So it's quite difficult and pernicious to get rid of. The, the, there was almost a deal to phase it out, but at the last minute, the Indian minister objected. And you just need one objection. You need anonymous, uh, sorry, a, a unanimous consent from all parties. And so that was not agreed. It even led to the host of the uh, UK summit uh, breaking into tears in describing the failure of the summit to agree a phase out on coal. This time, the ambition is even greater. Uh, people want to agree a phase out of fossil fuels completely. Uh, if if not that, then at least a phase down of fossil fuels. And then there's another camp that says, well, we'll agree to some of that, but you need to agree to unabated fossil fuels. What what does that mean? It means uh, uh, with the uh, you're not allowed to burn fuels in which the emissions produced are not somehow managed. This sort of very technical debate is one of the elephants in the room. It threatens to poison the air for all other more productive conversations, uh, because where you fall out on the spectrum uh, will let you either participate or not participate in more productive conversations about funding for, let's say, adaptation or a lot of other important issues that are on the table. But I think this fossil fuel debate has come to the top level of ideology because, of course, this is an OPEC country that's hosting one of the world's biggest oil producers. Uh, and as a result, anyone who has a climate bent already has their backup thinking, you know, the fix is in for big oil. This is a rigged game, a rigged casino. And so you're seeing uh, a pretty good chance, I would say, not non-zero chance that this will end up as one of the cops that actually falls apart, uh, as has happened previously in The Hague, when the Kyoto Treaty uh, fell apart with the US pulling out anyway. Uh, and, and like that, we've seen other moments where we've had major disruptions at, at these summits. There's a possibility that could happen. I'm not predicting that. There could be a better outcome. We can talk about how that could happen. But the level of distrust is quite high at this particular mm -hmm. summit with the issue of the future of fossil fuels and how to word that language uh, considered to be very important to many people attending. Mm. Um, we'll come back to the UAE in a bit, but I also just wanted to run through some of the other uh, big ticket it items. Um, it looks like uh, methane uh, will also be uh, an important issue in the next couple of weeks. And, you know, I mean, this summit comes right after a, a somewhat successful meeting between Joe Biden and Xi Jinping in San Francisco earlier this month, where they um, agreed on at least starting to do their bit to curb uh, methane emissions. Um, and I'm curious uh, where you fall on this, how you're watching this. 
also want to uh, call out our subscriber, uh, Dina Rome Speckler, who, you know, wants to ask the bigger question of, you know, whether Washington and Beijing um, are likely to increase their cooperation uh, at this summit, um, given what you've seen uh, over the last few weeks or not. Uh, I applaud your um, your listener to uh, uh, for asking such a, a relevant question. It is impossible to have any kind of climate breakthrough if the two biggest emitters uh, in the world, uh, the U.S. and China, are not playing nice. Right, as we know, the last couple of years uh, have not been a good period for U.S.-China relations. But we saw the Sunnyvale gathering. We saw the breakthrough she and Biden had, um, at least in terms of uh, setting aside direct hostilities towards more amicable language. And it was very interesting that on the eve of that California get together, the APEC summit, the Chinese unveiled a new climate plan in which for the first time ever, they said they're going to include methane as uh, in their national climate plan. And this becomes important uh, uh, in a couple of ways, but vis-a-vis -vis the US-China gathering, uh, part of the peace offering that China offered was um, they would include methane, and methane happens to be a very important priority for the Biden administration. Uh, the US EPA is about to finalize tough new rules for emissions of methane uh, from the oil and gas sector, for example. Uh, they've made it a priority. They're going to, they've been promoting efforts to finance, uh, which will be taken up at, at COP as well, uh, with philanthropic funding, donor funding to help poorer countries deal with methane emissions. So this is, they hit a sweet spot and they found an agreement. And so it's something they could agree on on climate. And that's a new area of optimism. Just on the eve of COP, we also saw the European Union pass sweeping standards on methane, both for domestic energy, as well as imported energy, which basically means uh, liquefied natural gas, uh, will have to meet European standards for reduced methane emissions almost down to zero. Maybe just to take a step back as to why methane matters, um, everyone uh, watching us, of course, will be familiar with carbon dioxide, the principal greenhouse gas, but methane is in some ways the uh, neglected uh, stepchild. It's the second most important greenhouse gas, but has not really had a lot of attention paid to it. But if you actually, and it behaves differently, it's much less long lived in the, in the atmosphere, it's half-life maybe closer to a decade, where CO2 stays in the air for hundreds of years, even longer, uh, but its effects are much more powerful. While it's in the air, it has a much stronger uh, warming effect. In fact, up to 45% of today's warming can be explained by methane. And methane is the principal component of natural gas. A lot of it's released during the production of fossil fuels. It also comes, I think everyone would know, from you know gassy cows and from rice paddies, from, from uh, other man-made sources, as well as some natural sources. So. Energy is not the only place that it comes from, but energy is an important place, a significant mm -hmm. contribution, and it's also one that's uh, that can be tackled. Um, mm -hmm. And that's where the optimism, I think, comes in in this uh, conversation, is there are uh, there's a momentum building to tackle methane emissions from the oil and gas sector particularly, to be extended to the coal sector. And that is possible in part because methane that you don't vent or flare in the process of making your natural gas or oil can be captured and ultimately sold. In other words, you can monetize it. So most of the natural gas that's being wasted, that is methane, and contributing heavily to climate change can actually make you a profit if you invest a little bit to fix a leaky valve, put, you know, take, take care of pipelines that are currently leaking. In other words, a little bit of investment now will pay massive rewards for the environment, but even to the actual company that does it. And the reason no one's done it is there's been no incentive, no one's been looking, you couldn't really detect it, 
And all of that is changing very rapidly. We can talk about how and why, but that's the, the nub of why methane matters. It's a very powerful greenhouse gas in the short to medium term that is now getting attention and I think might actually see some action at this COP. Wow, fascinating. Um, loss and damage. So uh, the decision to establish uh, such a fund last year um, was hailed by many people as sort of a, a real step forward, um, at least tonally. My understanding is that not much was advanced in terms of substance, but the very fact that there was a, an acknowledgement that countries in, say, the so-called global north needed to do something to help poorer countries uh, deal with the impacts of climate change um, was was a shift in terms of rhetoric. Um, I believe a draft framework was, was agreed upon last month. Uh, can you tell us a bit about that and how you see this issue being advanced uh, at this conference? Sure. I was at Sharm el-Sheikh when that agreement came through. It was a surprise in a sense, in the sense that no one knew for sure it, could, it would happen. It had always been uh, demanded, and rightly so, by developing countries or those who are most vulnerable, small island states, for example, uh, that the rich world, which got rich through industrialization, through contributing the historic stock of emissions, um, contribute to uh, the, the developing countries' ability to adapt or to compensate them for loss and damage that is already evident now. It's no longer a future theoretical case. We're seeing the damages from climate change racking up in, in, in the billions upon billions around the world and in, in, the, in the cost of human lives, of, of, of tragedies that we see uh, repeatedly. And so that demand has been on the table for a long time. We did see a breakthrough in the setting up of the fund, but no money, right, uh, as is the way. So this was an, in some ways an empty gesture, but perhaps a symbolic victory. Uh, the rich countries did acknowledge uh, that this was important and ultimately uh, the idea is for it to be funded. The European Union has indicated that they're willing to start the funding. We might well see an announcement shortly uh, during COP made with some fanfare, no doubt, um, but it will probably be relatively small amount of money. Let's remember, uh, I wanna put this in context. While uh, important from the moral perspective to acknowledge that historical legacy uh, of emissions and important to set up a mechanism to think about uh, helping the countries that are gonna be most affected, oftentimes they're the ones that have contributed least to emissions. Africa as a whole has contributed less than 5% to the stock of emissions, but will almost certainly bear a much, much greater uh, burden from future uh, damages, right, and losses. Here's the problem. This mechanism will never have enough money to compensate for those losses and damages. It's a, it's a totem, it's a symbol. Just like there was a prior agreement for the rich countries to put in $100 billion to help developing countries by the year 2020, which was not met on time and now maybe barely has been met depending on how you do the numbers. Um, my view on all of this is these are the kinds of totemic battles that suck the energy out of these climate meetings. And I've, you know, for my uh, sins, I've been to too many of them to count um, that are almost utterly pointless. Um, the uh, scale of investment that's required to deal with climate change measures in the trillions. If you look at estimates from the International Energy Agency, for example, the amount of uh, investment to, that's needed to go into climate-related technologies, new energies uh, around the world will reach something like four, four and a half trillion dollars per annum by the end of this decade and needs to be sustained if we're going to get to a world of net zero emissions, which is the aspiration of the Paris Treaty of of those that think about climate seriously, we need to really get to a net zero climate world. Four and a half trillion dollars, and you compare the sum of a hundred billion, it's nonsensical, it's trivial or, or worse, right? It's, it's something of a, a distraction. Uh, what we really need to do is think about how we unlock pools of capital 
probably from the private sector, right? Because there's not enough government aid that's going to reach in the trillions per annum uh, or from the World Bank or other development agencies to be meaningful. So we need to think much more radically and aggressively about unlocking private capital, about using the public capital that there is to, for example, providing more innovative risk guarantees for forex risk or for interest rate risk, uh, or be willing to take more losses on first dollar risk than traditionally the development banks have been willing to. So that's a broader conversation, which has been kickstarted, but the COP is probably not going to get to the bottom of that process, right? And we're probably going to see a huge amount of, of headbanging among delegates about what about funding the loss and damage? Is it a few hundred million from Europe? Is it what's the US doing? Fine, that's okay to have as a conversation, but then the oxygen is sucked out of the room. But what we really need is a more productive conversation about getting trillions of dollars, much of it in the developing world, not even at China. China is already spending plenty on, on clean energy uh, in the non-China part of the uh, developing world uh, that needs to come. And that's the real conversation that needs to happen. And you are listening to Foreign Policy Live. Remember, you can watch these conversations live and on video on our website, foreignpolicy.com. Subscribers get to send us questions in advance, in addition to a range of other benefits, including our magazine. Sign up, use the code FPLIVE for a discount. That's FPLIVE, one word. Add a little curiosity into your routine with TED Talks Daily, the podcast that brings you a new TED Talk every weekday. In less than 15 minutes a day, you'll go beyond the headlines and learn about the big ideas shaping your future. Coming up, how AI will change the way we communicate, how to be a better leader, and more. Listen to TED Talks Daily wherever you get your podcasts. You raised something that uh, a point that gets brought up at all of these conferences, which is the role of the private sector in sort of boosting or leveraging uh, finance in areas that, you know, don't always move as quickly. And then there's also the issue of interest rates where, you know, for developing countries to raise the money, it's just so much harder um, given uh, the access to capital, but also the fact that many of these countries also happen to be the ones that are struggling with debt crises. Um, so uh, on all of that, do you see much movement on the issue of freeing up money? Um, and you know, it's one thing to talk about equity in terms of a loss and damage fund, but equity in terms of access to capital. Do you see movement there this year? I see some uh, dark clouds, to be honest, uh, but I also see something of a silver lining, and I'll explain what I mean. Um, look, there's no question that the current global environment is hostile for clean energy. Uh, you know, we you can argue the other way. We went through a period of <laughs> zero or negative interest rates for a number of years, where lots of things got funding that might might not have or should not have, right? Uh, uh, things in the app economy and uh, you know, out of Silicon Valley, but also lots of forms of clean energy were able to get funding that might not have in a tighter interest rate environment. Well, we're, we're here in, an, in a world of higher inflation, of greater geopolitical risk, in part because of what's happening in the Middle East and in Ukraine, but also of, of course, the higher interest rates that central banks have brought about to try to combat that inflation that's here for a while. And that affects clean energy in a couple of ways. Um, renewable energy and nuclear, it must be noted, which is a zero carbon source of energy that needs to be part of the solution if we're going to get serious about a net zero economy. Both are heavy on capital expenditure, upfront spending, light on 
operating expenditure, CapEx heavy, OpEx light. So you have to spend a lot up front of your total project cost, but then with the wind, you know, your, your, your fuel is free. The sun is free, right? And nuclear fuel is not very expensive compared to the cost of a nuclear plant. That's not the same ratio as for say combined cycle gas, which is uh, more even evenly spreading of the jam. And so high interest rates are killers for these kinds of projects. And we've seen it's not just uh, developing countries, which I'll get to in just a moment. In, in the US, the leading next generation nuclear power plant has just announced they're gonna give up because they're not able to make the economics work any longer. This was a shining light for the next generation of nuclear that people had hoped would take off. Uh, the number one fuel cell company in the world, arguably, America's Plug Power, which is a public listed company, just put out a warning saying that they might run out of cash this year, an accountant's warning, and immediately their shares were pummeled. These are American entities with access to the greatest capital markets and, and all of that. Imagine trying to get project support in Sub-Saharan Africa or Latin America or Southeast Asia for a renewables project, no matter how much good it will do for a community, no matter how good it is for the climate, if you're trying to get funding from some sort of foreign entity, you have to deal with forex risk, project risk, country risk, uh, and now with the additional kinds of inflationary environment that we're in, supply chain risk. So this is a, not a good moment for clean energy, despite the fact that coming into the last year or so, we saw tremendous gains in global clean energy investment, almost to the point of being double the amount of money spent on clean energy investment last year as in oil and gas. That's the positive trend, but I think there are some severe headwinds and we've seen it in offshore wind as well with the number of projects being canceled. That's the bad news. The good news is if that's green energy in trouble, I think that there's been a pragmatic shift away from what had been called ESG investing towards what I would call brown to green investing. That is uh, supporting the transition of traditional industries from being heavily polluting to shifting to decarbonization technologies, to becoming less polluting, ultimately to becoming greener industries. And that is opposed by some environmentalists who say, you shouldn't go brown to green, you should shut down broad industries. That is shut down steel plants or coal or uh, you know other, other forms of technologies, and you should only give money to the green. But that's a kind of virtuous approach that uh, is running to the wall at the moment. And I think we need to be a little more pragmatic. Most of the industrial economy is gonna reinvest its capital into the industrial base. That's how traditional industries are, petrochemical plants, steel mills, and much of the developing world is about to build for the first time. India, for example, is about to go through a massive burst of industrialization. And so we want to green that capex, I think is really the point. And we're seeing huge new funds from the Black Rocks and other uh, uh, capital providers setting up green, uh, brown to green funds that would reward the best of class companies, the ones that do better than their peers in cleaning up their act, the, um, the traditional energy companies that go fastest on decarbonization and reducing methane emissions will get the funding. The ones that don't or that are bottom tier do not. The idealists don't like that, but I'm a pragmatist. I say, look, we need all the tools in the toolkit to fight this battle because we're so far behind on the climate battle. Uh, mm. We cannot afford to let the ideal be the enemy of the good. Mm. I'm curious um, how something like Biden's uh, Inflation Reduction Act has moved the needle when it comes to financing. Um, you, we haven't discussed subsidies so far, um, but does that? What's your take on whether that works? And of course, it might be an option that's only available to bigger, richer countries. So the IRA, as it's called, the Inflation Reduction Act, you can really think of it as a triple whammy, right? Because it came on the heels of the bipartisan infrastructure law, and relatedly the Chips and Science Act, which also had some funding for related areas that touch on EVs or clean tech. If you take them in toto, this is the most important climate legislation the US has done in its history, really. 
And for the first time, the U.S. is turning up on the world stage with some credibility. So much credibility, in fact, that America's trading partners don't like it. You know, you're, as you know, uh, Europe is very unhappy that the U.S. is so generous with its subsidies and things like green hydrogen and other areas um, and uh, other parts of the world are competing. But that actually uh, might lead to a race to the top. That is, they, they may very well rethink how they do their subsidies. Europe is very bureaucratic in the way that it's taken to providing its support for clean energy, too bureaucratic, according to almost every company that I've spoken with, um, in the traditional bureaucratic way with, you know, reams of paper and documents. And, you know, the process is interminable with a lot of uncertainty. The U.S. process is quite simple, right? Um, uh, one CEO described it as literally like a multinational CEO from Asia said, if I go to Europe, I have to wait months and months, and I don't know after a thousand pages if it'll be approved or not. In the U.S., there's a two-page memo, an MOU, and we'll get the credit or we don't get it. I can make an investment decision. So in a sense, the U.S. is showing how you could do things in a different way, a better way. And we have seen uh, that a huge number of announcements have been announced and some money is beginning to flow. So it is having an effect in the real economy, although not as much as you would think, in part because some of the rules are not yet clear. We don't know all of the tax rules for a number of the uh, subsidies that have been promised. It'll become clear in the next six months. So that bottleneck could be eased. Here's the problem. The U.S. approach uh, is all carrots, no sticks, or almost no sticks. So it's very much based on providing incentives and inducements and sweeteners. But we know, uh, you know, economics 101, you need carrots and sticks. And so uh, this is an inefficient way to do it. And you're going to have money misdirected. It's quite possible that money will go to the wrong places, not to the innovators who might be two guys in a garage or a young company that doesn't have the resources to fill out the DOE paperwork, you know, to get the uh, subsidy or the grant but instead a bigger company that has a team that sits around trying to game Washington can afford the expensive lobbyists and consultants. That's how the game in Washington is played. That's unfortunately part of the risk of the way America is doing it because America and our Congress and our system is set up in such a way that we cannot pass meaningful regulation on carbon taxes or climate regulation. Uh, our politics doesn't allow it. So we're doing a second best approach. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think we'll have to see. And it's possible if there's a Trump victory in the next election, he has already said he would try to reverse parts of this. Of course, it depends on control of the House and the Senate. Uh, I'm, I'm a little skeptical that that will, that will happen. But let's just say there is a question mark over some of this. Uh, probably the beneficiaries, mostly red states, it must be said, Louisiana, Texas, Georgia, the Deep South, the industrial Midwest, where the wind is, uh, the Southwest, where the sun is. Republican governors and politicians probably won't allow a complete reversal because they're the ones that are benefiting in their states, but it would definitely make the environment frostier. Um, you know, hydrogen has come up a couple of times now in our discussion, and that is a an area that did receive a fair bit of attention in the IRA as well, the Inflation Reduction Act. Just very quickly, Vijay, before we move on to a couple of other topics, do you see uh, that move towards looking at hydrogen as a possible, a green hydrogen as a possible kind of solution here? Uh, is that a boondoggle? Do you see it as a worthy area of investment? It's both of those things. That's the irony. Uh, Look, it, it, first thing to say is it, hydrogen um, generally is not a source of energy, right? It it's, has to be uh, made from something. Although there are some adventurers that are looking for hydrogen coming out of the ground. It's called natural hydrogen. So you can watch this space for, you know, a, a magical discovery of infinite amount of hydrogen coming from the Earth's crust. That could happen. But until that day happens, we have to make the hydrogen from something. Today, we make it from fossil fuels in a dirty way. Tomorrow, we might be able to make it from renewables, from nuclear or if it's from fossil fuels, we can capture the carbon and store it in the ground. That's what's green and blue hydrogen, pink hydrogen. The bottom line is it's expensive. We don't have an industry to do it yet. 
and it's going to take a lot of subsidy and market development to get there. Why bother doing it? It looks like there's some hard to abate sectors, meaning heavy industry, uh, steel, cement, uh, some areas of transportation, maybe long distance aviation and shipping, where uh, we're not going to be able to electrify. If you could make electrification the solution for everything on Earth, that would be the best way to go because it's much more efficient. Hydrogen involves a loss of energy and conversion and transport. It's a molecule that wants to get out. It's very slippery and small, and so it's hard to contain. Uh, you, you would rather not deal with it if you could help it, but there may be some areas, maybe 10% of the total in 2050, according to official forecasters, for which we might need hydrogen and we want to have it up and scaled up and ready to go. Uh, it's worth investing in, but we're not, we shouldn't bet the whole farm on it. It's probably over-egged. There's been a hydrogen bubble. And so I think there's something of a correction going on in the marketplace. Uh, and I think that's a good thing because we need to have realistic expectations. It's going to be one tool in the toolkit. It's no magic solution for everything. Speaking of being realistic and pragmatic, uh, you mentioned brown to green as an area that could be uh, a part of the focus over the next couple of weeks. And that struck me also as a microcosm of the idea of the UAE hosting COP, um, fifth biggest oil producer. You have Dr. Sultan Al-Jaber, who also happens to run Adnoc, a big oil producer. How do you think that's going to play out in the politics of this year's summit? Um, because there is an argument to be made that, as you said, if you're pragmatic, um, you can't get rid of fossil fuels immediately. You need them in the in the short term as people invest more in greener forms of energy. But then you have uh, activists who will be at COP this year uh, and some countries that might make the case that uh, the UAE isn't a credible voice uh, uh, when it comes to uh, pushing towards greener forms of energy. How do you see that debate playing out? Uh, and where do you come on this? So you're absolutely right. This, I think, is one of the central questions for this COP. And it's um, uh, it has already had the effect of poisoning the debate, right? Um, uh, there are many people who are coming. There's 70,000 plus expected. Of course, many of them are hangers-on, uh, journalists or uh, environmental groups, uh, other forms of uh, civil society types. But even among the official delegations, there are a number of countries from small island states, from the so-called high ambition states, uh, which include some of the countries in Europe, who are very suspicious about uh, the fact that this is being held in an, in an oil country as an oil and gas producer, a big oil and gas producer, and hosted by uh, the chairman of the National Oil Company. Um, and uh, they have clearly uh, express their views in advance, right? We've seen numerous leaks, attempts to undermine uh, with uh, sort of internal documents showing that, look, the oil company knows what COP is doing. COP knows what oil companies are doing. They're trying to make this as a stage to try to win some oil and gas deals. This whole thing is a sham. It, the, the fix is in for big oil. So goes the argument. And, and so there may be no way to persuade people that come with that mindset that anything can be accomplished. And that's a possible outcome. We may even see as we've seen at several other COPs, a blow up and that ultimately the, the whole thing falls apart. That is a possibility, a distinct possibility. There is, however, another possibility. And that is that, um, you know, in the way that only Nixon could go to China and, and forge the kind of deal that he did, we might be able to see this. Again, this is hopeful and it's not proven. So let's see what actually happens. That um, at the heart of the climate problem is the fossil fuel industry. Right, um, we all know this. There's no secret about this. Um, and getting the oil industry, in particular, the big oil and gas uh, players, on board, is something that has never happened. No previous COP has been able to do it. Um, uh, and being able to bring them in the room, being able to, for example, on the methane topic, which we discussed already, if the leadership of COP 
Dr. Sultan al-Jabbar, whom you mentioned, uh, uh, has been trying to get the leaders of not only the Exxons and the Chevrons and the Shells, but also the national oil companies. There are dozens of national oil companies around the world. Uh, most of them are not as advanced technologically as the Abu Dhabi company, which is Adnoc, nor Saudi Aramco, which is the neighbor, which has invested billions of dollars into carbon capture or some of the uh, green hydrogen or blue hydrogen and so on. But rather, they are middling. Sometimes they're in poor countries. Those national oil companies don't want to know about the decarbonization question. They invest almost nothing in it. They want to milk their assets. They might even see the writing on the wall, oil and gas won't be around for that long. Then they'll say, well, let's pump harder because we're not going to be the last man standing. They don't have enough reserves. They don't have uh, cheap enough reserves. The, the cheapest and biggest reserves are in the Middle East. And in a cruel twist of, of geology, um, the lowest carbon intensity reserves are also in the Middle East, uh, meaning the ones that cost, take the least amount of greenhouse gas to lift out of the ground. And so almost certainly we're going to see the United Arab Emirates, Kuwait, uh, Saudi Arabia be the last men standing in the world of oil, whenever that last day is, tomorrow mm -hmm. or 50 years from now, if you take your pick based on your ideology, they will be the last men standing. Well, all the other national oil companies say, well, then we're just going to pump and dump. Let's get as much money out of it as we can. So how do you get them on side to say, no, 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 control your methane emissions, invest in decarbonization, re you know, reduce your future investments in uneconomic oil. We need to shrink the pie, ultimately going down to zero and net zero with abatement technologies. Only uh, a, a muscular oil man, goes the theory, can get these guys in a room with some credibility to bang some heads together and get a deal. That's the theory. Let's see if it happens. Methane is a good test. For the reasons I explained, it's something like 45% of current warming is explained by those methane emissions. Humans are the biggest contributor to methane, and oil and gas is by far the lowest hanging fruit. Um, mm. And we know we can do much better. If the world's oil and gas companies reduce their emissions to the level that Norway has done, and Norway has a, a, a very advanced oil and gas sector, we would reduce emissions from that sector by 90%. Wow. Just to give a data point, right? So this is doable with technologies that are available. Um, and so it's a question of political will. And I think that's the test. If he can get that done, then I think history will remember that this was actually a successful cop. But if even that falls apart, then the critics will have been right. They would have been right to be cynical about an oil company. Is This is like the fox in charge of the, you know, the chicken coop. Wow. So other than that point and, and COP28 not blowing apart, um, one of our subscribers, David Burrett, wanted to ask you, um, uh, what are the metrics that you're going to look at two or three weeks from now to measure whether COP28 was a success or not? And you've mentioned a couple of them, but what else is there that we should all be looking at as metrics to judge uh, how this goes? So there are uh, official COP outcomes, uh, and then there are things that happen at COP, right? So uh, I uh, once in a while, you have what's called a big COP. Paris was a big COP, right? Uh, the Paris Accord, a deal that came out was quite big. The Kyoto, obviously, the protocol came out of that. This is not seen as a big COP, right? What's important here is the global stock take. Uh, that is uh, air, uh, a snapshot of where every country is. We've already seen uh, that we are not on track. So an acknowledgement that countries are falling behind on the commitments made in the Paris uh, deal to uh, rein in uh, climate change uh, efforts. Our national plans are not adequate that have been put forward uh, by the countries. So in a sense, this is sort of this useful uh, self-flagellation exercise in the Chinese communist way of coming together and having a criticism and struggle session to say, no, this is not good enough. Uh, and having a little bit of a ritualistic shaming to say, go back and must try harder. Um, that is 
frankly, the most important thing that will come out of COP rather than any specific line item that's agreed by the conference of the parties. Um, you know, the endless debates and hours and hours into the late night that'll be spent on, will we phase down or phase out fossil fuels? It's meaningless, right? It's meaningless, literally. When you look at the amount that fossil fuels contribute to the global economy today, some of our listeners may be surprised to find out it's 80% of primary energy. 80% comes from fossil fuels today. So when someone tells you, we must agree today, we'll phase it out, sure. Or no, we must phase it down. What are we talking about here? Even on their most optimistic net zero analysis, the International Energy Agency and other forecasters still see a significant role for oil and gas in 2050, right? Just because developing countries will be rising, they will not yet have the clean infrastructure, they need a little more room to grow. Uh, we hope to do it with abatement technologies, right? Things like carbon capture on one side, perhaps uh, direct air capture and other technologies for sucking emissions out of the air. The UN scientific body known as the IPCC, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, says in the second half of the century, we're gonna need a lot of these technologies for negative emissions. Because bear in mind, net zero assumes that we have the ability to suck greenhouse gases out of the air because right. we're gonna overshoot. There's no plausible world in which we do not overshoot our highest ambitions. And those who ideologically oppose abatement technologies saying, oh, that's evil, that's the license to pollute, miss the point that this is our insurance policy because we have not done well enough. We are failing at this point and we need to have uh, the development of these technologies uh, so that uh, in addition to going very aggressively and phasing out or phasing down fossil fuels, as well as developing alternative clean technologies, we also must have these negative emissions technologies. We have to do all of them. That's what's the ambition that has to come out of a COP. And so when I judge a COP, I say, what is the level of ambition? And it's often measured inside agreements. Um, an example would be the First Movers Coalition that came out of a COP a couple of years ago, um, where leading companies said, you know what, we're willing to pay more, like an advanced market commitment in pharmaceuticals, which, which of course your readers would be familiar with, we'll pay more to have these new uh, deep decarbonization technologies, more dollars per ton, for example, for uh, direct air capture um, in order to buy them down or to give contracts in advance so that the technology advances faster. That's the kind of commitment that came out of the sidelines of a COP, and we, we're going to see more of those. And that's what I would really look for to see progress and momentum. I have to agree. And, you know, at last year's COP, it really seemed like the phrase all of the above was just being used more and more. We need to emit less. We need to figure out carbon capture. You mentioned so how to get uh, the stuff that's out there out of the atmosphere. And then finally, to also think about mitigation amid uh, both of those two prior uh, sort of things to focus on. Um, Vijay, you know, a lot of these kinds of discussions about uh, climate change can can feel uh like it's all doom and gloom. And every time there's a new report out, um, it's hard to sort of gauge how much more can I ratchet up my level of alarm because it's already at uh, 100. You've been covering this for so long. Um, as you think about COP28 and the road ahead, what is giving you hope? I'll tell you that the thing that gives me hope is that we are seeing after many years of inaction, frankly, to be honest, um, uh, that we are finally getting serious about the innovation side of this equation. I think that um, uh, there is now more interest, mainly because of desperation, right? There's nothing sharpens the mind like desperation. We, uh, there's much wider understanding of how serious the problem is. Some people will despair, some people will give up. Um, but I think that we're seeing much more willingness to say, let's roll up our sleeves, let's develop all of these alternatives, let's go faster on both 
cutting emissions, reducing the use of dirty fuels, but also let's scale up. How do we do no-till agriculture or new ways of de dealing with methane? Um, satellite technology is an extraordinary advance in the in the field of uh, environmental observations. If it wasn't for the advance of methane observing satellites, including one that the environmental group EDF is going to put up next year, um, governments would secret secretly keep their emissions data, lie about it as Russia and some other countries do, and we would not have any way of naming or shaming them. But uh, based on satellite data uh, that was analyzed by a third-party independent company, we saw Turkmenistan revealed to have massive super emitters of methane. It became such a national scandal. The government is meeting with the United States government urgently to ask for some help and remediation. In other words, we're actually seeing governments move to action because of watchdogs, of new technologies, of, in a sense, uh, the tools that are now democratizing to keep them honest and to apply that pressure. So I take heart in, in this momentum, the global bottom-up, uh, outside-in kind of innovation that I see that is really the reason for hope. Uh, because now we've, we're democratizing the process. There's no collection of 198 negotiators, wise men and women gathering in some fancy UN hall that's gonna solve this problem. We need them, they're useful. It's a useful process. Uh, and it, it, it galvanizes the efforts of everyone. But the solutions are always going to come from the outside in and the bottom up, in my view. And I think that's what's beginning to happen. And on that hopeful note, I'm going to end it. Vijay Vaitisran, thank you so much for your time. It's been a pleasure. And that was Vijay Vaitisran, the Global Energy and Climate Innovation Editor at The Economist. Next week, we will go back to the conflict in the Middle East. I will be joined by Rashid Khalidi, a professor of Arab affairs at Columbia University. Remember, you can watch these conversations live if you are a subscriber. Use the code FPLIVE for a discount. FPLIVE, the podcast, is produced by Rosie Julin and Dan Efron. And the executive producer of FPLIVE in video is Tal Alroy. I'm Ravi Agrawal. I will see you next time. Hi, I'm Annalise Riles, professor of law at Northwestern University. I'm also an anthropologist and the host of a new podcast, Everyday Ambassador, where we give you the small tools that make big change. The idea for this show has been a long time in the making. I actually remember the exact day I started thinking about it. It was March 11th, 2011. I was in Japan conducting research on the financial markets of Tokyo. All of a sudden, I heard a loud rumbling sound and the room started shaking. Everything came crashing off the shelves. I looked out the window and I could see the skyscrapers swaying so much that they looked like they would touch. And then the sirens started going off. A tsunami was on the way. These were the harbingers of one of Japan's worst ever disasters, the meltdown of the Fukushima nuclear power plant. The Japanese government now says two reactors are in partial meltdown and four more are at risk. The meltdown completely turned Japan on its head. I saw hundreds of stunned office workers covered in dust walking down empty train tracks to get from the city to their homes in the suburbs. Electricity was out, internet, cell phones. Supplies flew off the shelves of stores. 
Geiger counters became an in-demand item, which is never a good thing. Living through a crisis of this magnitude was an inflection point for me. To prevent the next Fukushima or any of the other crises we face today, we'll have to work much more effectively across silos of expertise and national boundaries. And we'll need to harness the wisdom of everyone, from local fishers to nuclear physicists, on how the world really works and what happens when things go awry. Using this approach, I've gone on to spur countless innovations in global policy. And that's what this podcast is all about. Everyday Ambassador peels back the curtains of high-stakes leadership and gives everyone backstage access to the most powerful methods of diplomacy. In each episode, we'll break things down into deceptively simple moves that everyone can make to help build a more peaceful and sustainable world. Like giving a gift. You want to make it tasteful. You want to make it thoughtful. You thought about the other individual. You thought about what their likes and dislikes are. Or creating a fiction. Taking on a fictional scenario and a role outside of the one that you occupy in your day-to-day life allows you to think through what you would like to have done differently. Or just taking the time to have fun. Trying to see this as more so building long-term relationships that are going to be helpful uh, down the line when negotiations are a bit harder, as all negotiations are. Each week, you'll hear surprising stories which reveal the moves you can make to change the status quo, to find ways to connect and move things forward. So join me and become an everyday ambassador coming to you this spring on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen.